0: Hey, this is Matt Stacy, Youth Pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Praise the Lord. Tonight we are in lesson 10 of our study of the book of Revelation. We are looking at the seventh of the seven churches of Revelation. Chapter, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're at. We're looking at verses 14 through 22, the church at Laodicea. If you wouldn't mind, would you pray with me over this and then I'll allow you to be seated? Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity in your house to hear your word. Lord, we ask you to let your word fall on good ground tonight. God, help me to teach in a way that you can anoint. Help me to say everything you'd have me to say, nothing more, nothing less. Help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. God, let your word get in us and affect change in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Lesson 10. The church at Laodicea. Laodicea is located about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was one of the wealthiest cities of the ancient world. It was a magnificent city. It was probably one of the reasons that it was so wealthy would be that it was located... You know, they say in um in uh okay, my brain is failing me. You're selling homes. What are they doing? Realty. real real estate, reality, reality, real estate, real estate. They say the key term in real estate is location, location, location. And probably now that I've totally destroyed the opening of this lesson, the reason there was so much wealth in this city would be the location of the city. It was located at a central meeting point of three main Roman highways. It was a banking center. Um, It was famous for its wealthy citizens when a earthquake destroyed the city in the 60s-ish A.D., the citizens there rebuilt the city with their own money, denying any help from the Roman Empire. They didn't want to take any money from the Roman Empire. They rebuilt the city themselves. They were very wealthy. This city was known for expensive clothing, it was famous actually for a type of black wool that was uh, unique to an animal that was unique to that area. They were the only ones who had access to it. And so uh, they made a lot of money with that. It's, this city was it had a uh, hospital, one of the finest schools of medicine in that day, was located in that city. So they had a lot going for the city. One downside of the city that's going to apply to our lesson later is the fact that, unusual for a city in ancient times, this city had no natural water supply. So they had to pipe in water from a long distance. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us today because we're used to that kind of thing. But in that day, you typically wouldn't build a city unless it was by a river or a lake or some form of water supply. Uh, and it was because you didn't have access to it otherwise. This city was, however built away from a water supply. And so the Romans and Roman ingenuity and engineering had devised a way uh, to get water to that city. And so that's what they did for water. They, um, yeah, let's just dive right in. Verse number 14. I don't want to overdo that part of the lesson. Verse number 14 The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, of the Laodiceans, rather, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So I love that in each of these letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches, he identifies a characteristic of himself that either they need to know or they need to be reminded of. And in this letter, he picks out three characteristics of himself. The first, he says, is he is the Amen. The Amen. What is Amen? Amen is truth. Amen is certainly or certainty. It's often translated in the Bible as verily. When a preacher preaches truth, and I hope that we listen, uh, one downside, if there is a downside, about the South and Southern Christianity is the fact that the louder the preacher gets, the more excited the crowd gets. And the amens will just pour in and there's a point a point that that becomes a little bit unhelpful because uh sometimes the listener and I've been um I've been in trouble myself of doing this you almost stop listening to the preacher and you're just excited because he's excited and so you get to saying amen because uh he's excited however amen means truth let it be so certainly it means verily So when a preacher preaches truth, that's the only time that amen should escape your mouth. When he's saying something true, and it's true, it resonates inside of your heart. It resonates with the Holy Ghost that's inside of you. You respond with amen, truth, that's true, certainly. Jesus here says that he is the amen. He is the amen. One thing that is interesting about this is when Jesus says that he is the amen, another thing that he is saying essentially is everything that I speak is truth. When he speaks it, it becomes truth. What is truth? I like to define truth as God's thoughts on any subject. Whatever Jesus thinks about any subject, that's the truth about that subject. So Jesus, when He says that He is the Amen, He is the truth. When He speaks, it is done. It is certain you can take it to the bank. If Jesus speaks it, it's going to happen. It's certain. It's truth. He is the Amen. So He's letting the church know, right off the bat, I am the Amen. And then you can look at this as a second category or some people look at this as an add-on to that first, he is the Amen. He says that he is the faithful and true witness. Which what is Amen? Amen is a faithful and true witness. In Isaiah 65, 16, God is called the God of truth or literally it could be translated the God of a man. He is the God of truth, So Jesus says that He is the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness. Amen. Then He says He is the beginning of the creation of God. And I love this. The beginning of the creation of God. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 15. Colossians 1 In verse 15, we're going to get into this because this is interesting. It's interesting the kind of different arguments there are for this verse. Jesus says that He is the beginning of the creation of God. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, "...who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature?" So Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and He is the firstborn of every creature. Jesus is then the beginning of the creation of God in the same way that He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is not talking about a preexistent Christ, this is talking about Uh, the same thing that John talks about at the beginning of his let, or his gospel rather, when he says in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. So in the mind of God, in the plan of God, Jesus was the firstborn of creation, but he was also slain from the very beginning. That doesn't mean that he was from the beginning of time constantly being slain. That just means the plan, the blueprint, was already in the mind of God from the very beginning. But this word also, it's archaea in the Greek, it has a secondary meaning uh, also. And some people see a conflict here, but I don't see a conflict here. I think that we draw both of this, uh, these rich meanings out of the word of God here. When Jesus says that he is the beginning of the creation of God, I think that he's also saying that he is the, in fact, that word beginning, and this is why there's so much argument, it can also be uh, translated origin or first cause. So we have here, Jesus is the origin or the cause of the creation of God. In other words, Jesus was saying that he wasn't just in the beginning in the mind of God, he was the creator himself. Only one God. I don't know how people get three out of this. Jesus himself says that he is the beginning. Look at Colossians chapter 1, 16 through 19. For by him, talking about Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created by him and for him. So Jesus was not only the, he, he was the God from from the very beginning. Amen, if we could just put it succinctly and say it that ways. Verse 17 says, "And he is before all things. So Jesus says, in Revelation, I am the beginning of the creation of God. Paul says, in Colossians, Jesus was before all things, And by him all things consist. That means Jesus is holding together all things. He makes all things function as they should. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. In who? In Jesus Amen. One writer asked the question, powerful question, is Jesus in the Godhead or is the Godhead in Jesus? The Bible says that the Godhead is in Jesus. All the fullness of the Godhead is in Him. So Jesus says that He's the one that created everything. Everything is by Him. Everything is for Him. He's from the beginning. Jesus says that he's the amen. He's the faithful and the true witness. And then Jesus gets into his, um, his letter, if you will, the depth of the letter to the church at Laodicea. It's interesting. This is the only church out of these seven churches that did not receive one positive statement from the Lord. Jesus didn't have one good thing to say about the church at Laodicea. That's tough. In every one of the churches, he would say something nice, and then he would say something hard. Uh, In some cases, two of the cases, he only had good things to say. But here, he's only got bad things. He's got criticism. He's got a rebuke. So let's look at that really quick. Verses 15 through 17. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Tough. Tough comments from the Lord. Jesus starts it out as he does with every other letter, and I've mentioned it every time I've drawn attention to it on purpose, and I, can, I must do so again here. Jesus says at the beginning, I know your works. I know thy works. Right off the bat. Every church that Jesus writes to, the first thing he wants them to know. He's not pulling any punches, he's not hiding anything from them. He says, I know your works. I know everything you've done. I know everything you're doing. He says, I am the I am the one that sees all and that knows all. He says, I know thy works. And then he gets into this discussion of hot and cold and lukewarm. In order to understand what the Lord is saying here, we have to know a little bit about the geography, if you will, of the region. So 10 miles to the east of Laodicea, you would come to the town of Colossae, and there you would find cold springs, many cold springs you'd be able to get a nice, refreshing drink of water from those cold springs. Then, if you were to travel six miles to the north of Laodicea, you'd come to the city of Heropolis. And there you would find hot springs. And you could... um you could get in the hot springs and you could recover from soreness, whatever it is. A hot tub's good for all kinds of stuff. Amen. I wish I had one in my life, in Jesus' name. One day. So you've got ten miles to the east, cold springs. You've got six miles to the north, hot springs. And then, if you remember what I told you at the beginning of the lesson, you've got Laodicea, who has no natural water supply. They're stuck. They actually have to pipe in their water from another water source. And if you know anything about that, you know that as the water's traveling, it's traveling across stone and stuff. And by the time it gets to where it's going... The water is no longer cool and refreshing, or no longer really warm, it is just lukewarm. And not only is it lukewarm, you might could get by with just lukewarm, but the water would typically be bitter, and it would be chalky and full of debris that it would catch along the way by traveling along those stone uh, aqueducts. So this is the situation that Jesus is writing about. See, we look at this too many times with western eyes, you've got to go back to the beginning to understand what it, what Jesus is communicating here. And so whenever he writes about hot and cold and lukewarm, immediately the people in that day would have known and their attention would have been drawn to their situation. They knew where to go to get cold water. They knew where to go to get hot water. And their city was stuck with lukewarm, bitter water. What Jesus was telling this church is that the condition of their church mirrored their water supply. Jesus said that it was lukewarm and it was useless. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. Jesus said, I would rather you were hot or cold than lukewarm, like your water supply. Because if you were cold, you can drink that. There's a a benefit to having cold water. And there's things you can do with hot water. You can cook with hot water. You You can recover with hot water. There's uses and benefits for it. But lukewarm water, there's nothing that it's good for. It's useless. There's no edification that comes from a lukewarm water supply. And that's what Jesus is rebuking the church for. We've got a useless church in Laodicea. They're not hot. They're not cold. They're just useless. They are lackadaisical. They are uncaring, unmoved. You know James. He he uh, succinctly summed up this kind of Christianity in James chapter two verse fourteen when he said, "What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him?" See the people in Laodicea. They're spiritually bankrupt. They have the right title, they've got the right doctrine. In fact, if you look at this, Jesus, he rebukes other churches for false doctrine. He rebukes other churches for compromising. He rebukes other churches um, for all kinds of things. Uh, One church loses their first love. So Jesus rebukes um, that church because they lost their first love. But he comes to this church... And he doesn't rebuke them for false doctrine, he doesn't rebuke them for losing uh, love, he doesn't rebuke them for a heresy, or for a compromising spirit, or anything like that. Instead, what Jesus is so stirred up about is the fact that they are just casual, casual Christianity unmoving, uncaring, apathetic, there's no growth, there's no fruit, there's no sign really that they are a Christian outside of the fact that they believe the right thing. And people, the sign on the door says apostolic church. And they're dressing right, and they look right, and they've got all the motions down and the things down, but there's no move of God in the church there's no spirit in the church. There's no life force that's there. They were spiritually bankrupt, indifferent, apathetic, unmoved. That's what we would, how we would describe a lukewarm church. I want to point out, and I'll point it out several times, that he's not writing to lost people. I've, I've heard people, um, they sum up kind of th- that, portion of scripture and they say, see, Jesus is saying that it's better to be either saved or totally lost than somewhere in the middle. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was talking about usefulness and unusefulness. And he was rebuking a church because of their unusefulness. He was talking to believers and he wants from us to be useful I pray, I pray in my, this is, this is something that I've got to pray often and it stirs me up. I want to be considered profitable by Jesus. I want Jesus to look at my life and think that's profitable. That's hot. That's cold. That's useful. I can do something with that person. That's what I want from Jesus. I don't want Jesus to look at my life or my ministry and think to himself, there's, I don't know anything that I can do with this person. And that's what he sees here at this church. It's not that they are backslidden to the point where they're ungodly and they're worldly. The problem is they don't care. They don't care. They're doing things themselves. They're wrapped up in the agenda. They're wrapped up in, in, in trying to figure things out themselves in the, in the program. You know, we're living in a day where we've got self-help and, and there, there's self in everything. Self-help books, self-help courses, self-love, self-revelation. You've got all kinds of self, 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 self. And if you could sum up this church in any way, that would be it. It's a self-help church. This church just believed they could accomplish everything on their own. If a drug addict was to come into their church, they would try through counseling and through friendship and all that kind of stuff to get the drug addict um, away from their addiction. But a spirit-filled church, our first response to somebody that is addicted to somebody that is lost to somebody that is struggling is I want to get them in touch with Almighty God. I want to get them touched by Jesus. I want the Holy Ghost to move on them, but not this church. This church has got it all figured out and they really don't need Jesus. That's the condition. And so Jesus uses one of the strongest rebukes in the entire Word of God. The entire thing, Laodicea receives one of the strongest rebukes from Jesus. What did he say? He said, I would rather spew you out of my mouth. He said, in other words, you make me sick. You make me sick. It's not that you're completely backslidden or on fire for God. That's not what he was talking about with hot and cold. He's talking about usefulness. And you don't care to be useful to the kingdom of God. And that makes him sick. Casual Christianity, apathetic, just come to church, go through the motions, nothing changes, nothing moves, go home and do the same. And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm all about. I came to seek and to save. Jesus came to touch and to change. Nothing should stay the same when Jesus gets a hold of a life. You ought to be able to tell a difference between not just who you were when Jesus found you, but you ought to be able to tell a difference today than who you were last year and even last month. There ought to be signs of growth in your life. And so Jesus gives that strong rebuke to the church because they were just going through the motions. Nothing was changing. The church in Laodicea, Jesus said, you make me sick. Here's the condition of the church. The church was wealthy and the church was large. Wealthy and large. Too many times we believe that that is all that matters. And this church, wealthy, large, apparently believed that they outgrew their need for God. They operated, catch this, so well in the flesh that they believed that they had no need for the Spirit. We've got all of it figured out. We don't need that extra something, that move of God. See, that's the thing. You can't control. I know that, I know there are people in our world today that feel like they can, that they can control the Spirit. But that's an element you can't control. The wind blows where it wants to, John said. The wind does what it wants to, but we've got to have that element without that, with that, with that, with that element missing, nothing matters. Doesn't matter how well we've got it figured out in the flesh if we don't have moves of the spirit. So here's this church operating so well in the flesh that they neglected or really believed that they had no need for the spirit. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, you say, have you ever seen one of those memes where uh, it says, basically, this is, this is what I see, and then it's got a nice picture, and then it says, this is what everyone else sees, and it's like a, a crazy picture, one of those kind of memes. This is basically what Jesus has got going on here. He says, you say that you are rich. You say that you are increased with goods. You say you have need of nothing, but here's the truth. You're wretched, and you're miserable, and you're poor. And that poor is, is that word, there's the strongest word you can use for poverty. It means grinding poverty. It means reduced to begging. You're poor, as poor as you can get, and blind and naked. See, what happened with the church of Laodicea is it's very easy to mistake uh, material wealth for spiritual wealth. There's so many people that mistake the good things in life, the blessings for God's favor and the bad things in life um, for God's wrath and that's not always the way that it's true. And so you've got this church and they've mistaken material wealth for spiritual wealth so because they're rich and they don't need anything and they've got it all together they feel like that they are spiritually healthy and the opposite is the truth. The saddest part about the church in Laodicea, the, the saddest part of all is the fact that they were lukewarm and they didn't know it. They were shocked, probably, that Sunday where this letter's being read, people sitting on the pew. They're wealthy They've got it going. They've got the programs down. They've got everything down in their flesh. They've they 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 they've got all the systems. They know everything's working. But there's no move of God, and they still think that they've got it pretty good. Their church is doing good. We're growing. We're wealthy. We've got influence, or at least they thought they had influence. And Jesus is sitting here saying, the truth is, you're lukewarm. You're useless. Probably one of the wealthiest churches of the day. And Jesus says, you are useless because there's some things that money cannot buy. What are the signs? What are the signs of a lukewarm church? What are the signs of a lukewarm individual? This is where we do some soul searching. Here are a few signs of a lukewarm individual, sin no longer bothers you. That's a sign of a lukewarm individual. Whenever you can watch sin, hear sin, be around sin, and you're just desensitized to it, and it doesn't bother you, something inside you doesn't groan at it, something inside you isn't grieved at it, you're in danger of being lukewarm. If you can read about thousands of abortions being performed and your thought is, who cares? You're in danger of being lukewarm. If you can watch the LGBTQ community and the agenda that's going on and the, I'll just say it, the abuse of children today where parents are taking young, young children and are telling these children that they don't really have a gender and you can pick whatever gender you want and that doesn't bother you, that doesn't stir you up, that doesn't cause you to want to pray, you're lukewarm. You're desensitized. You need to get back into the prayer room. You need to get back a hold of God. Something's got to move you. If you can watch movies in Hollywood full of sin and sin's agenda and you can see that kind of stuff and something doesn't stir inside of you and say this is wrong and grieve for America and our society, you might be lukewarm. Sin has got to bother us. That is one of the greatest dangers I believe that the church is facing today. It's the fact that sin doesn't so much bother us anymore. We are so busy preaching about health and wealth and miracles and signs and wonders that we forget that sin actually grieves the heart of God. And there are people in the world that are addicted and bound and trapped by sin while the church is inside the the, the four walls of the church celebrating all of the victories and blessings. We ought to be standing against sin. You know what? Jonah, when he went to Nineveh, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. But Jonah went to Nineveh with one message. He didn't go to Nineveh and preach a merciful God. He didn't go to Nineveh and preach a loving God. And God is merciful and God is loving and God is just. And we serve a great and mighty God. But God gave Jonah one message to go to Nineveh. And you know why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Read this story. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. And this is just amazing because he was a man of God. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach, not because he was afraid. Jonah wasn't afraid of the reaction of the world. Jonah wasn't afraid that they were going to throw stones at him or they were going to try to persecute him or they were going to try to kill him. You know why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Because whenever he preached sin and judgment to Nineveh, Jonah was afraid that God was going to save them, that they were going to repent that they were going to turn. And so now we've got people in 2021 that won't preach sin and won't deal with the Word of God because we're so afraid of offending people and hurting people's feelings. We ought to get that uh, little Jonah in us and say, you know what, we're just going to bring the Word. Give people an opportunity to repent. Give them an opportunity to turn around and get right with God. Sign of a lukewarm individual, sin doesn't bother you anymore. You can be around sin and it not hurt you, not hurt your heart. Another sign of a lukewarm individual, God's word doesn't excite you or convict you. If you can hear the word of God and you can be unmoved through the entire thing, and nothing inside of the Word stirs you or moves you or convicts you or excites you, you might be lukewarm. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharp. And if it's not cutting, there's something wrong. It ought to get a hold of you and get inside of you. Another sign of a lukewarm individual, God's Spirit doesn't move you. A move of God can be happening and you can just sit there unmoved, unchanged, nothing happening, and it's just like another moment. Another sign of a lukewarm individual, worship doesn't interest you. Worship doesn't interest a lukewarm individual. A lukewarm individual can sit in worship and just do nothing and, and watch everyone else get involved and never once the entire time even feel a need to lift up holy hands unto God. That's a lukewarm individual and I'm not talking I don't believe that there's a certain blueprint for the type of worship that you've got to bring to God the type of praise you can be one that goes crazy and dancing in in your worship you can be an individual that sits quietly in your area and you've got your hands lifted but you've got pure tears coming down your face as you worship both are pure and pleasing to God because it's sincere praise and worship to Him but what's unacceptable to to him is standing in his presence unmoved with no desire to do anything no moving at all that is lukewarm that's lukewarm christianity the lost this is another sign of a lukewarm individual the lost doesn't burden you you look at your world you see them sitting you see them lost and you're unmoved by it callous unconcerning I don't mean that you've got to beat down every door in your neighborhood. But when you see someone caught in sin, I wonder, is, is one of the first thoughts that come to your mind, God save them. Whatever you've got to do, bring them back to the house of God. A lukewarm individual is unconcerned about the lost. One preacher had this quote, and I believe it's a powerful quote. He said this, he said, Lord, Make me a crisis man. Let me not be a milepost on a single road, but make me a fork that men must turn one way or the other on facing Christ in me. And that's what we need more than anything today. We need to be crisis people. You know what the sign of a lukewarm individual is? People meet you, and they don't even know if you're a Christian or not. They have no inkling or idea. You're just a signpost on their road. They just keep walking the road that they're on. No problems. But somebody that's hot or cold for God, a useful somebody, somebody that's not lukewarm, they're the type of person that when somebody meets them, they've got a decision to make. They come face to face with God in you. With Jesus in you. And they have to decide, do I want to follow like they, or do I want to go my own way? And you know what? Sometimes they go their own way. In fact, the majority of the time, they're going to go their own way. But you, they have to be able to make that decision. You don't want to be lukewarm and uncaring to the world. They ought to be able to see Jesus in you. And it ought to force them to make a decision. We don't want to be lukewarm. We've got to be crisis people today. Cause a crisis for everybody that meets you. A Jesus crisis. Make them choose. Do I want to be this or do I want to keep going my own way? But don't leave them unchanged, unstirred, unmoved. Look at verses 18 through 19. I counsel thee, this is Jesus talking, to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. Jesus tells them, buy from me. He says, buy gold from me. He says, buy clothing from me. And you know what this is really? This is a strong critique of their self-reliance. This is a strong critique of this idea that the answers are in man. Because the truth is, if you read those things that Jesus says buy, those things cannot be bought. There are some things, and I believe that's the point that Jesus is making to them, He's telling them in almost an ironic way. You've got all your wealth. You've got all your money. You're well to do. You've got it all together. Why don't you buy these things that are necessary? Don't you realize that you're poor? Don't you realize that you're naked? That you're blind? That you're miserable? So come to me and buy these things. You're spiritually poor. You're spiritually blind. You're miserable. Come buy these things from me. He's kind of saying it in that way, but he's knowing that these things are a free gift from God to anybody who would search them out, to anybody who would desire them, to anybody who's not lukewarm, to anybody who uh, presses for them. They're available. We have access to so much in God that we, we leave unattained and unaccomplished because of lukewarmness, because of casualness, because of apathy, because of uncaring. Jesus says, come and buy these things. Truth is, they aren't wealthy enough. None of us are wealthy enough to buy a move of God or to buy righteousness or to buy spiritual riches, we've got to have Jesus. And that's the truth. Jesus is saying, you've got to come to me. There are certain things that Jesus can provide that no one else can provide. There are certain things that we have just got to have him. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We can't make it from day to day without having Jesus in us and operating through us. So Jesus says all this, He corrects them, He says, I've corrected you because I love you, and then He tells them that great thing in all of Scripture, repent, that opportunity to get right before God. He's asking them about repenting of their lukewarmness, and one might say, is lukewarmness, is apathy, is uncaring, is just going through the motions, really something that's worth repenting over? Absolutely. It's one of those things that, that God wants no part of. He wants no part of apathy. He wants people that are going to be profitable. What happens to the tree that doesn't bear fruit? It's cut down and cast into the fire. Jesus does not, He does not care for apathetic, um, carnal Christianity, casual Christianity. Jesus wants people that are bearing fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. We've got to have that. So let's look at these last few verses, verses 20 through 22. Jesus sums this up his letter very well, and it's interesting. At least I find it interesting. Have you ever had anyone tell them that they were sick of you? Tell you that they were sick of you. You ever had anyone say that they you, they, you just make them want to vomit and then turn around and offer you a chance to come sit with them in their home to come dine with them usually when someone says I'm sick of you or you make me want to vomit that's cause for separation we're going to go our own ways we're done but not Jesus, Jesus is always reaching, always reaching for people. So Jesus says, you make me want to vomit, and then he asks them to repent. And then there's this next portion that is so stirring. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and him sit down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Many have understood this to be a call to unbelievers. Jesus is standing at the door of the unbeliever's heart, if you'll just let him come in, if you'll just be baptized in Jesus name, filled with the spirit. But this is not what this is talking about. This letter is written to believers. People that have already had the gift of the Holy Ghost. They've already been baptized in Jesus name. They're just, they're just lukewarm. They're believers. He's standing at the door of lukewarm unmoved, unconcerned, apathetic, self-reliant believers. And he's saying, let me come in. Stop relying on yourself to figure everything out. Stop trying to control everything. Give me a chance to work and to operate in your life. Is that not one of the saddest scriptures in all of the Bible? That the Lord is standing at the door of the heart of many believers, many people that are Holy Ghost filled, baptized in Jesus' name, apostolic believers. And he's standing there saying, let me in. Let me be Lord over your life, over all the kingdoms of your heart. And too many times we say, God, you can be, you can be ruler over this kingdom, but you can't have this kingdom. And you can touch this area, but you can't have this area. And Jesus is standing there and he's saying, let me be Lord of all. He's knocking at the door and says, if you'll just let me in. There are so much that we have access to that we do not reach because of apathy. And the next thing Jesus says, and if the music wants to come, I'm coming to a close. And I love this. If we will decide, you may be lukewarm, you may be in that situation where your prayer life is struggling, your Bible reading is struggling, you, you see the signs of lukewarmness and you know that it, it, it may be you that is in that situation. And Jesus says that if we desire to change, He's willing to help us make the change. And not only that, he says to him that overcomes, will I allow to rule and reign with me? They can sit with me on my throne, Jesus says. To them that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. There is so much power that we have access to if we will just decide to let God rule in our hearts. Stop making decisions. You know, these, these uh, motivational videos, and I love motivational videos because I'll watch a five minute clip and, and feel like I can just conquer the world. But you know the truth is, I can't. It's, there's no greatness in me alone. That's not true, it's a lie. Everybody says, look inside of you. Let God pull that greatness out of you. No, there's no good but God. There's no greatness in me. Anything that is good in me, God does it. Anything that is great, God makes it. God gives it. It's not me. I don't want to be self-reliant. I don't want to try to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to be the person that at the end of the day says, everything that I have... Is Jesus's. Jesus is the reason I'm here. Jesus is the reason I'm saved. Jesus is the reason my family is saved. Jesus is the reason I'm still able to go to church. Jesus is the reason I haven't backslidden or fell and fallen away. Because I've allowed Him to rule the kingdoms of my heart. Why do I have peace? Because I've allowed Jesus to be Lord of all. That's the truth. You don't need any more self-help books how to overcome in 10 different steps, what you need to do is get in touch with Almighty God. Almighty God. Amen. If you want to stand. This is the last of the seven churches. And Jesus said to each of these at the, at the end, He leaves this statement. He says, He that hath an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So Jesus is saying, if you've got an ear, then this message was not just to the seven churches. It's to you. It's to anyone who is able to hear. And if you're spiritually discerned, if you have the ability to be moved, to be convicted, to be excited by the Word, then that means that you've got an ear. He says, let them hear. And James said, and I love it, Lord, don't just let us be hearers of the word, but let us be doers of the word. Let's move from hearing to doing. Amen. I wonder if we could find a place to pray tonight. Let's ask God. God, make me me useful. God, make me profitable to your kingdom. Lord, let me be hot or cold. Let me be useful. If you can use anybody, use me.